8. I had something I wanted to add here at the beginning. Go ahead, Hebrews chapter 8. I didn't mention this during announcements, but um, this week from Monday through Wednesday, I was able to go on a, uh, a personal, I had lots of names I called it, personal pastoral spiritual planning and study retreat, uh, were some of the names I called it. <laughs> Basically, it was me in a hotel by myself praying, reading, studying, and planning for uh, for 2023. And uh, it was really, really awesome. The Lord blessed that time. I had some good prayer time. Had some good time actually connecting over lunch and coffee with some other pastors. And then I had time by myself, lots of time by myself uh, with the Lord, uh, just just thinking through church and thinking through Hope Bible Fellowship and the future and those kind of things. Really excited for 2023 and what uh, the books that I'm going to be preaching through, the books of the Bible I'm going to be preaching through, and the way those things are going to roll into even 2024 and 2025. So uh, I'm excited for that. Um, just just wanted to give you that report that, that the Lord was good, and I'm thankful for a church that wants me uh, to get away for times like that, so uh, for my own, my own growth and edification in the Lord. So anyway, <clears throat> back to Hebrews chapter 8. And now, as you read through the book of Hebrews, if you've read through it before, you'll notice something about it. You're going to notice, excuse me. You're going to notice that the author of this book goes to great lengths to get to his point and to explain his point. And it seems as you're reading it, I I, I was listening to a friend uh, who had taught uh, Hebrews to teenagers, and he said, you know, he took like a whole year doing it or whatever, he said, there's a lot of repetition in there. And what you do notice is all of the repetition. And now that's great for the learning process. It also goes, uh, goes to what we find in Scripture, that when something is repeated in the Bible, it's done for emphasis. Anything repeated over and over again is done so we'll pay attention, so we'll understand the importance of what is said. A great example is when it says that God is holy, holy, holy. It's repeated for emphasis so that we get the importance and the extreme amount there. A lot of Hebrews seems to be repetitious to us. And when we encounter that repetition in the Bible, we need to ask ourselves, why is this repeated? Why is the author emphasizing this? What is he trying to emphasize here? It's part of how we seek a deeper understanding of the Word of God. Now, throughout chapters 1 through 7, which we've been through in the last several months, and if you missed the last couple, you might want to go listen to those later on just to give yourself some more context, but... Throughout chapters 1 through 7, the writer of Hebrews is showing these Hebrew Christians who he's writing to, um, he's showing them and us as well what they have needed, what we have needed. But now he begins in chapter 8 to tell us that what we have needed, what they have needed is exactly what they have. So he's saying in 1 through 7, here's what you've needed, but then beginning in chapter 8, he's telling us that that we already have what we need in Christ. We have exactly what we need in Christ because what we need is Christ and only Christ. In chapter 8, the writer, he, he contrasts the old covenant and the new covenant. Now, understanding the importance of covenants is key to our understanding the history and culture of Israel and why this passage was included in this letter, to, which was written, again, to Greek-speaking Hebrew Christians who were being pressured to roll back into old covenant ways of worship. They were being pressured to fall away from following Jesus and go back into those old Jewish religious ways. And the pressure was extreme. 
and the stakes were very high, I've said before. So the writer contrasts in this chapter, and we're going to cover the whole chapter. It's only 13 verses, but we're going to cover the whole chapter. He contrasts the old covenant and the new covenant. Now, what's a covenant? Well, a covenant is an agreement or a contract established for relating to someone. And it is in terms of a relationship. A covenant with someone is in terms of a relationship. Michael Kruger writes this. When two people get married, they stand in front of a congregation and make promises to one another. They enter into an agreement, like a contract. They also exchange signs of that agreement, rings, which they will wear for the rest of their lives. Unless it falls off while you're tubing with a youth group. He didn't write that part. I added that. That's another story. They also exchange signs of that agreement, rings which they'll wear for the rest of their lives to remind them of the promises they have made. What they are doing is entering into a covenant. A covenant is simply an arrangement in which two parties make vows to one another and exchange symbols associated with those promises. People can make covenants with one another, but God also enters into covenants. And that is what today's passage is about. It's a contrast of the old covenant and the new covenant in order to show why these Jewish Christians don't need to live under the old when the new is already in effect. So if you follow along, I'll read, I'll read the passage. You can follow along in your Bible or on your device or on the screens back here behind me. We're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1 and I'm going to read through verse 13. Now, the point And what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises." For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their hands and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one, each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask God to give us understanding and the faith to obey it. 
Lord God, as we come before you, we confess we need your help. Without your spirit, we cannot understand. Help us understand. Move in our hearts, Holy Spirit. Help us understand your word. Help us to obey it, to apply it to our lives. I pray you would help my words be clear. Father, that if there's anything that's solely me, that you would clear it out. God, that you would help us understand your word, that you would increase here, and that I would decrease. And that, Jesus, you'd be big because this is about you, and it's for you. It's not about me. It's not about musicians or anybody in the chairs. God, it is about you. Help us know you more. Help us serve you better, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. In this passage, the writer is really up front with us, right? He's really up front, and he serves us well by outright stating what the main thrust of his argument is. His entire argument about the security of the new covenant is going to be based on the fact that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, ministering on our behalf. Well, let's, let's take a look a little bit at, at the old covenant and the new covenant in contrast right here at the beginning. So both covenants were, both covenants were initiated by God. God was the initiator of those covenants. He, he initiated those relationships. Both were designed to bring the people into a special relationship with God and also with each other. So if you look at the old covenant, it was designed to bring the nation of Israel into special relationship with God as his people and also relationship with each other. The new covenant as well, it brings people into a special relationship with God as the church, as the church, as his family adopted into the family of God. The old covenant was made by God with Israel when he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, and this covenant created again the nation of Israel. The new covenant is the one that God made with, again, I just said this, his church when Jesus died for the church and rose from the dead three days later. So the old covenant established Israel, the new covenant established the church, okay? So what is so much better about the new covenant? If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down as point number one. The new covenant has a better sanctuary. The new covenant has a better sanctuary. See, even looking at verse one, now the point in what we were saying is this, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The new covenant has a better sanctuary because the place of the covenant is better. It's located in the heavenly sanctuary. In verse 2 and verse 5, there is referred to a tent. Now, the reference is to the tabernacle. Your translation may actually say tabernacle. But the reference is to the tabernacle. When Israel led, led by God out of Egypt, excuse me, when Israel was led by God out of Egypt... My brain and my tongue were not working in concert there, sorry. But when God led Israel out of Egypt, God gave Moses plans for the tabernacle. It said that when, you were, when the plans you were given on the mountain, right? He was given the plans for the tabernacle by God. This was a tent of meeting. Some of you think, well, that word tabernacle sounds uber spiritual, right? There was, this was a tent of meeting where God met with his people. 
And this was before God had told them to build the temple. So as they wandered in the wilderness, they had this mobile place of meeting with God. A few years ago, several years ago at this point, we were living in Iowa. There's this ministry called uh, Tabernacle something something. I don't remember the name of it. But they set up a replica of the tabernacle and then you tour through it. They give you an MP3 player and headphones and you tour through it and look at all the different things. And it explains, it goes through and explains each of the elements, each of the, the pieces of furniture and the curtains and the poles and the rods and the, everything. It explains it all and how it points to Jesus. It was really cool. So I kind of, when, when I can kind of visualize it a little bit, you know, what we're talking about here. But it was the mobile place of meeting with God. They would get somewhere, they would set it up, and that's where the nation could meet with God. The tabernacle was set up, though, by human hands after the pattern that God had given. But according to the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ fulfills his ministry in a tabernacle, not that was built by man, but in one, the true tent that was set up by God, the heavenly sanctuary. The tabernacle was a tent on earth. It was very real. It existed, but it was not where full salvation was won. Our salvation takes place in the true sanctuary in heaven where Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Humans did not make our salvation. It was done by God. Humans did not come up with this salvation thing on their own. It was instituted, it was initiated and carried out by God. So the place of the new covenant is better. Second, the priest of the new covenant is better, serving in the better sanctuary. Jesus himself ministers in this sanctuary. I said he sits at the right hand of the Father. See, the new covenant has a better high priest, and I preached at length about this in previous messages We don't have a high priest from the tribe of Levi who ministers on behalf of the people. We don't have a merely human priest. We have a better high priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 100% man, 100% God, sacrificed himself in our place for our sins on the cross and rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God and ministers in the true sanctuary of our salvation. And our superior high priest offered a superior sacrifice. So we've got here, if you're following kind of the pattern here, following along with this progression that I'm doing, the new covenant has a better sanctuary. Well, secondly, in that sanctuary, the new covenant has a better sacrifice. The new covenant has a better sacrifice. We see that if we look to verses three through five, where it gives us the details of the priest's duties in the tabernacle. First, we understand that the Levitical priests would offer up animals in the earthly sanctuary. They would go and they would sacrifice animals. And when the priest would go in, they did not go in without having something to offer. He would take a sacrifice. And the scripture tells us that he had to have something to offer. But Jesus didn't fit into the line of priests of Levi descended from Aaron, he wasn't an earthly priest. He ministers in the heavenly tabernacle and brings a superior offering, a superior sacrifice. In verse 5, we see that the earthly Levitical priests serve as a copy 
and shadow of heavenly things. A copy and a shadow. Now this word shadow would have maybe ticked some things in the brains of these Greek-speaking Hebrews. Al Mohler points out the way the cultural context of the original audience may have played into their understanding of this language that's used. He writes this, Since the author wrote to Jewish Christians immersed in Greek culture, it's important to note the language of shadow. His audience probably would have been familiar with Plato's parable of the cave. Plato argued that our knowledge is like that of a man who is kept in a firelit cave and only sees the shadows of real objects when he looks at the cave's walls. Plato believed we only know things as shadows of the original. The real object casts the shadow in the firelight. In telling them, in this author writing to them, that it's a shadow of things to come, he's teaching them and he's teaching us how to read the Old Testament. He's teaching us how to look at when we read things in the Old Testament. He's teaching us how to read it in light of Christ. That it's a dim display of the glory of God that points to something greater. In case you hadn't caught on yet, that something greater is Jesus. We're going to talk about him a lot. So we've got this new covenant having a better sacrifice. Because the earthly priest, the Levitical priest, offered up animals, the blood of animals. But here, the Lamb of God offers up himself in the heavenly sanctuary. He offers up himself. Everything in the old covenant was designed specifically to point forward to Jesus Christ. And the point was never, the point was never that we would continue in the old covenant ways of worship. The point was always that this system that God had established through Moses was a shadow and would fade. It was a sign pointing to something greater that was needed and was coming. That which was coming was now there. And the author wants his audience to know that they don't have to and can't do anything else because it has all been done and accomplished in Jesus Christ. When I think of that, I was was preparing this and I was thinking through this passage because there's a lot in here, but we've talked about a lot of it in other parts of Hebrews and thinking about this. And I thought about the Old Testament um, pointing to Jesus and... um, I've been, lately, I've been listening to one of, one of my favorite musicians of all time just because of the way he writes a lyric and some of the things he said is this guy named Rich Mullins. You may have heard of him, you may not have heard of him. He's been, he's been dead for, since like 1997, so he was killed in a car wreck, actually not that far from here. But anyway, he, uh, down by Peoria, um, he wrote songs like Awesome God and a bunch of other songs you've probably heard. Um, but there's a book um, that's it's about him. It's kind of some quotes from him and, and almost like a devotional biography kind of thing. But it's called Arrow Pointing to Heaven. And it, it, the, the title comes from somebody took a picture of him and he was doing this up on like a hill or a mountain or whatever. And he said he looked like an arrow pointing to heaven. And that's what I think about. I, I thought about that with the Old Testament, that it's like an arrow, like a bright spotlight not focused on itself, not focused on the old Jewish ways of worship, not focused on all the festivals and the, and the rituals and all of that, not focused on that, but those things are themselves like a spotlight or like a giant arrow pointing straight to Jesus Christ. 
I used the illustration that I'd heard another pastor use before that they're like, it's like the menu, but the meal was to come. And so if, if what, what the author is doing is he's trying to convince these Hebrew Christians that, look, if you already have Jesus, you already have the new covenant, then going back into the old covenant, old, old model of worship, this, this old covenant worship, these old religious ways, going back into that would be like them bringing you the steak at dinner and you saying, nah, I think I'll just chew on the menu for a while. None of us would do that. None of us would do that. That which was coming was now there. And the author wants them to know, you don't need anything else. You don't need those old ways. You just need Jesus. And Jesus established in that new covenant, established the church and established everything we need for life and godliness. And he's given us his word. So the new covenant, it was in a better sanctuary It had a better sacrifice. And number three, the new covenant has a better security. First of all, the new covenant has security, which is amazing. But the new covenant has a better security. The old covenant, well, we're going to talk about why the old covenant was not secure. But the new covenant is held with better security because the old covenant was mediated by a man. The old covenant was mediated by Moses. God initiated the covenant and set it up and he gave the the parameters of the covenant to Moses. It was mediated by a mere human. Now, why is that a problem with the security of the covenant? Well, Moses was human. Moses had a sin nature. Moses had sin. He was flawed. I mean... He wasn't even allowed to enter the promised land. Moses was flawed. And this is yet another reason why the old covenant was insufficient because it was mediated by someone who was in and of himself insufficient. Second, the old, the old agreement, the old covenant, was ruined by Israel's sin. If it was faultless, if the old covenant was faultless and perfect, then there wouldn't have been a need for another covenant. But as it is, Israel's sin, their constant turning away from God to idolatry, was proof of the need for a better covenant. Israel broke the covenant. God will never break his promise. God will never break his covenant. But Israel broke the covenant. And their sin showed the fault. The old covenant The Old Covenant was inferior because it did not contain a guarantee from God that it would not be broken. Let's say that again. The Old Covenant was inferior because it did not contain a guarantee from God that it would not be broken. Whereas the New Covenant has that. Another way that the Old Covenant was insufficient, we find it was written on dead stones was written on dead stones. In Exodus thirty-two fifteen, it says this, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. First of all, I don't know that I've ever seen a depiction of the tablets where they were written on the back. You always just see them coming down with, the, with them written on the front. Anyway, I just... That's, 
Just something I literally just noticed. But it was written on dead stones. The covenant was written down on something that's lifeless, on stone. It wasn't living. And that's where we find the beginnings of our contrast with the new covenant. See, the old covenant was mediated by Moses, but the new agreement, the new covenant is mediated by Christ. The new agreement is superior because it's mediated not by a mere man like Moses, but by the Son of God himself. So it's mediated not by Moses, but by Christ. Second, the new covenant is restored by Jesus' sacrifice. Friends, Jesus is not a backup plan. This was God's plan. This is God's plan. Jesus has always been the plan. The relationship between God and man that was broken by sin was restored through the gospel. It was restored through Jesus' death on the cross for our sin as a substitute for sinners. I don't know why I made that two syllables, but anyway. Jesus was always the plan. And his sacrifice restored, restored the relationship between God and man. And the new agreement, the new covenant, is not written on dead stones. Verses 10 through 13, we find this. It's written on living hearts. The new covenant is not written on stone. It's written on living hearts. In this passage, the writer calls back and he quotes Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, which, which say this, and you're gonna, this is going to sound familiar because he's quoting it, right? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember, remember their sin no more. You remember how I said the, the Old Testament or excuse me, the New Testament is showing us how to read the Old Testament in light of Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is using that Old Testament and saying, see, this points to Jesus. The new covenant is not written on stone tablets, but on living hearts. And this illustrates yet another difference and a reason that makes the new covenant superior to the old covenant. See, the old covenant relied on religious ritual and sacrifice of animals that was insufficient to cover our sin for eternity. But the new covenant affects and changes living hearts of the people who are included in the covenant. It's not about outward performance, but about inward change at the very base of who we are. And that change will work its way to the outside, but it starts with a new heart. Where that agreement between God and man is written on living hearts. To wrap this up, the new covenant is not just better, 
but it is superior in every way. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the hints and the foreshadows and the promises in the Old Testament. Luke chapter 22, 37. Jesus says this, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. The Greek word for fulfillment, okay, is this word telos. And I don't expect you to remember the Greek. But I just tell you that because what it means, what telos means is fulfillment. Or in some other places, uh, it can mean end. It's been fulfilled. My friend John Hawkins explains it like this. He said, He said, the new covenant and Christ go together like the old covenant and Moses. Christ is the better Moses. Moses, the lesser, pointed to the one who is greater. The the telos, the fulfillment of Moses, was Christ. The telos of the old covenant is the new covenant. One is ending in fulfillment and the new one moves forward. Telos, fulfillment, communicates the aim of the old covenant and its role in relation to the new covenant. Now, this is very important because many Christians are unfamiliar with the Old Testament due to neglect of it. But here in the book of Hebrews, God shows us how the Old Testament points to all of this. The Old Testament's incredibly relevant and of great value because the New Testament and the New Covenant have been fulfilled. Moses gave, excuse me, because of the New Testament and the New Covenant being the fulfillment of the Old And Moses gave the law on the mountain. And then the new Moses showed up and on the mountain explained what that law was all about. The old covenant and the new covenant are tied in that way. There's a group of people out there. There's one in particular well-known teacher that I've heard. Who says that basically the Old Testament, we uh, we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. The problem with that, besides just being ignorant, is that you can't unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. One of the thickest books in my library, I've said this before, one of the thickest books in my library in there is a commentary on the New Testament's use of the Old Testament, where it goes through every passage that alludes to or quotes the Old Testament within the New Testament. You can't unhitch it. If you unhitch it, a lot of it's not going to make sense because they're tied. Because the new covenant is the fulfillment of the old. Jesus fulfills it. See, all of us have sin. In the old covenant, the blood of animals was spilled to cover the sin of people, but it was insufficient. It it wasn't good enough, and that ritual had to continually be performed over and over again. And that high priest would continue to be put in office because one would die, and then they'd have to have another one. But Jesus, as our perfect high priest, offered himself as the perfect sacrifice that would be completely sufficient for all sin. He died on the cross, taking the sin of his people upon himself, and died in our place as our substitutionary sacrifice. And it is the only way that our sin could be atoned for. The only way we could be saved from the wrath of a holy God. And if we repent of our sin and believe or trust in the gospel, that Jesus takes our sin and gives us his 
righteousness. That's the only way we can be reconciled to God. And three days after Jesus willingly gave his life on the cross, he rose from the dead. And this proved, it proved without a shadow of a doubt that God had accepted that sacrifice and it cemented the new covenant. This is our only hope. And now Jesus, as we read, sets at the right hand of the throne of God the Father. And this shows us his exalted position and his place of meditation for us in that heavenly sanctuary as that perfect sacrifice. What a glorious truth. This is not some high theological thing to just, you know, intellectually assent to. This is the truth of God, and it's why you can stand there in a minute and cry out to God, and he hears you. It's why you can go directly to the throne of God and say, thank you. Thank you for protecting my friend Rob. Please heal this friend. Why we can go to him and we can say, God, I've sinned, forgive me. Because Jesus is our mediator, an eternal high priest. And he mediates a better, a superior, new covenant. A fulfillment. That's why, friends, when Jesus is on the cross, and he's getting ready to give up his spirit, he doesn't say, oh, we're almost there. He says, it is finished. Finished. I'm going to invite the musicians to to come up as I kind of finish up, make their way up here. So I was trying to think of, these are incredible truths. So what what do we do with that? Yes, we want to, sometimes the application is praise God and trust him. Okay? Sometimes the application of a passage is amazing truth and understanding more of why we can follow Jesus, right? But in looking at the problem, the problem with the old covenant was the sin of the people, right? Our problem is also our sin. It's the thing that separates us from God. So the question we have to be confronted with today, and really every day, but but today is have you repented of your sin? Because God went to great lengths. I just talked about it for like half an hour. God went to great lengths to make a way for us to be reconciled to him for eternity, to guarantee that, to seal it. See, the message for the original audience is that they don't need to revert back into their old covenant ways of worship as they were being pressured to. They didn't need to go back to doing that because all of it was pointing to Jesus. They had the solution now to the problem of sin in Jesus. And they were tempted to go back and hang out in a system that was broken by sin when the solution to sin had already been given them. So what are some of the implications of this? Well, I think there's an implication... I was thinking about this this morning. There's an implication for the way we worship. 
There's an implication for the way we worship, solely focused on Jesus as the fulfillment of what was required. Our God is the only one worthy of our worship, and he alone sets the parameters for how he is to be worshipped. See, he's the instigator of the covenant, and he's the guarantor of all that has been accomplished. He guarantees that it's finished, that it's done. As I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about the way we worship and you know God setting the parameters for that and just this glorious truth of Jesus on the throne, you know, at the right hand of the Father. I, I was thinking about songs that sort of illustrate that. And I came to a song, it's one of one of my old favorites. Years ago I heard this, uh, Sovereign Grace does a version of it, Shane and Shane do a version of it, a bunch of people do a version of it, but it's called Before the Throne of God Above. And I just want to end by, by reading this because I, I just, the lyrics are uh, just really incredible. It says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, my Christ, my, with Christ my Savior and my God. With Christ my Savior and my God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, as we uh, come to this time of responding to the truth of your word in worship, I just pray that our hearts, that our hearts would just, 